and thanks for listening to this month's Northern Logger podcast. This month, we spoke with Jim Thompson. Jim Thompson runs Thompson Native Lumber, a sawmill in Hopkinton, Rhode Island, that is a mid-sized mill that provides important markets to loggers in southern New England. We spoke with Jim about what makes him successful in business and how he has managed to keep a mid-sized mill going in difficult conditions over the course of his career. We also speak with Aaron Kessler, who as of September is going to be the new editor of the Northern Logger magazine and the new host of the Northern Logger podcast. That's after our interview with Jim Thompson. Thanks to this month's sponsor, John Deere. Unlock your potential and experience a new level of innovation with our latest operator assistance feature, Intelligent Boom Control. With IBC, operators no longer need to control each independent boom joint separately. One joystick moves the boom tip horizontally, while a second guides it vertically, allowing for consistent and smooth operation. The end result is a better experience for all loggers easy-to-learn functionality for new operators, and enhanced productivity for experienced ones. Intuitive and accurate, IBC is the smart way to take control of the forest. Raise your game with IBC. Innovation never felt so easy. All right, here's our interview with Jim Thompson. I'm here with Jim Thompson at Thompson Native Lumber, which is in Hopkinton, Rhode Island. And it's a mid-sized mill that Jim has been running for a number of years that provides markets in southern New England. Yep. And so we're just here to talk to Jim about how everything got started and, you know, the niche that you all have carved out right. in the industry and how you've been able to keep things going in difficult conditions right. over the course of your career. So right. yep. I think the best place to start is probably the beginning and oh. how you how you ended up in this industry. Wow. Well, my father used to be a far dairy farmer and he gave up farming and got into the sawmill business doing logging and other stuff. And finally he bought a brand new, I mean, he bought a sawmill and started sawing railroad ties. And he uh, got a little bit of pallet lumber, which we sold to a local pallet company off the sides of the railroad ties. And we just kept going like that. He had a little portable mill that he moved from woodlot to woodlot from 1955 until 1970. And uh, 1970, we finally set it up permanent, but we would go to these people's woodlots and cut 50, 60, 80,000 board feet of lumber with that little portable sawmill, and then we'd just pack it up. It was easy. One day we could have it all tore down and sitting on a trailer ready to go, and the next morning we'd be at the new job all set up, and we could saw lumber the same day. Right. And uh, it saved a lot of trucking of the logs to the sawmill at that time. And uh, finally, in 1970, we moved to this location, still in Hopkinton, and set the mill up permanently with no roof or anything like that on it. And so if it rained or snowed or whatever, we didn't have to work, which was nice. But he always had something for us to do, <laughs> build pallets or something like that. And then in the wintertime, we plowed snow for the state and the towns. Each year, we progressed a little bit further along and invested more into 
extra equipment and improve the uh, sawing capacity of the sawmill. And at the end, I think it was an Amadon sawmill, which is a relic right now. And that's what we uh, started at this location with. Finally, he ended up buying a brand new lane sawmill that was semi-automatic. You still had to pull the handle and all that stuff as you always will, but it had hydraulic dogs on it and tapers on it that would go in and out. And that saved a lot of labor. And uh, we ran that sawmill for ages and ages out here, put a roof on the building. Finally, after you got the, before he got the new mill, we had a, a roof on the building. So we had to work every day then. And about what year was that? That was 1970, but he bought the new mill in about 1980. Okay. The lane mill. Yeah. And at that point, how many people were working for you? Was it just just family? Just four. Okay. And you were splitting your time between operating the mill and being in the woods? Or were you buying from other crews? Nope. Back then, we did it all ourselves. We'd go to the woods for a couple days and log and... Then we'd come back here and saw up what we what we got. There was nothing wide open out here like it is right now. Sure. If you saw the old mill, all it was was just a little hole in the wall back then, <laughs> and, and there was no area out here. We didn't have the equipment to to do land clearing or anything like that back then. Right. So. And who would your customer be back then? The railroad company. We sold it to a broker, which would be F.B. Clark Corporation over in Connecticut. That was a place down in Narragansett, Rhode Island, called Oakwood Products that bought all all the byproducts off the ties, and they made pallets. Hmm. They'd buy cans or they'd buy boards or whatever whatever we had. And when we sold all the slabs to people for firewood back then, we'd load up a three-card load on the trucks, one of the big dump trucks, and if the people themselves, if nobody wanted any slabs right then, we'd still pack the slabs in the truck and we'd truck them up to Union, Connecticut, and then make charcoal out of them. We'd go up there with that load and dump it up, and those people at the charcoal place would stack it in a great big round container, all bricked up, probably... 100 feet in diameter. No, it wasn't quite that big. I'm going to say 40 feet in diameter. Then they would torch it off and let it turn to charcoal. But that got to be quite the run. It would take all too long to go up there. So we ended up buying a chipper and started chipping the slabs up for chips if we couldn't sell them as slabs. And we ended up trucking them up to Maine. Actually, I we took them to Providence first. There was a place in Providence that bought all the chips back when we first started. They were using them for uh, top paper and stuff like that up there in Providence. Can't think of the name of them right now. But Beard. Beard? B-A-I-R-D, I believe. Yeah, I, I don't remember. It could be you could tell me anything. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Now, did so, you ever bring your slabs to the charcoal mills in Patro? No, never. Nope. The only place we ever took slabs for charcoal was over... The, over to Union, Connecticut. Well, so then how did you go from working at that scale to having an operation that's the size that yours is today? Well, that was 50 years ago, 1970 to now. Sure. 50 <laughs> years ago. So every year it's like anything else. You make a few improvements here and a few improvements there. You get a, another bucket loader or another 
whatever, and you get more customers. And if you make a customer happy, they pass it on to their neighbors. And then you got another customer. And we always try to make sure we satisfied the customers. Right. With good quality material and whatever else it took. So I want to talk about the mill now. Um, how many employees do you have? There are 17 here now. Okay. Um, and you have a circular mill. A circular mill with a top saw. Yeah. Right. And so about how many board feet of lumber are you processing? It depends on what we're sawing that day. The fact that we do post and beam, some days we don't have a lot of volume. Right because it takes longer to do that specialty piece of lumber. Mm -hmm. We even saw tapered beams for some of these customers. And one end might be a 10 by 10 and the other end's an eight by eight. So that's time consuming. You could have sawed three more logs while you're working on that taper for the, but we just passed that expense on to the customer. Sure. You know? Can you explain for our listeners who might not be familiar with the area, why you got into post and beam and what that market is like around here? Um, my dad was, uh, when he first started in here, he knew a lot of people and customers just came to him and said, Hey, Jim, would you, uh, would you saw me out some eight by eights? I want to build something. And it just gradually grew to a, a post and beam company called South County Post and Beam down here in Rhode Island and a couple towns over. And they they were doing a lot of oak posts and beam houses and sheds and barns. And it was like once a month they were doing doing one. Totally. And then the next thing you know, word of mouth got out and we got picked up another post and beam customer. These were all hardwood posts and beams back then. And then later on down the road, the hardwood was getting harder to find some of it because a lot of the logs started going up north, the, the good logs that you need for the post and beam. And we started doing a little bit of pine, just like South County switched over and started making pine post and beam. But the specialty was oak, and white oak even. Anyway, as the years went on, we kept running into more people that were sourcing uh, some new places to find lumber at. And... Uh, especially for the post and beam part. I mean, there's a lot of sawmills around, but nobody wants to handle those big beams. Hmm. Yeah. You know, and you got to have the young kids out there that are all, you know, want to do it. And we've got a good crew out there that work here. i got a couple of guys that have have been very dedicated and a couple of loggers like Mr. Thurber that's been very dedicated. A flat finger crew. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, some of them been here for 30, 31, 32, three years, a couple of them. But my best friend, Jack Grills, um, he came to work here in 1970 helping out. He was my best friend in school, and my father hired him, and he stayed here and worked 44 or 43, four years, and then he passed, got sick. And he just passed away last year. I'm sorry to hear that. Yep, me too, because we miss him very. He was the Sawyer here for, boy, I'm telling you, I don't know, the last 30 years. Sure. He thought he had the best job here. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious how 
you know, over the course of all the changes that have happened to the industry, especially yep. in this region, yep. over the course of your career, how you've responded to those changes and been able to stay in business while a lot of mills have gone out of business. I guess they call it diverse diversity. You know, diversification. Diversification, yeah. because we do oak and pine. Most sawmills that do oak don't want have anything to do with pine or vice versa, because we'll, we'll start out in the morning out here sawing oak, and then we got to change everything all around and start sawing pine to make a customer happy. Mm. And uh, But we used to saw... So within the same day, you're switching. Switching back and forth. Yeah. Yep. That is pretty unique. Yep. Not many people will do it. I mean, maybe a little smaller sawmill, a couple, two or three man sawmill might do that. But when you got that many employees, you it's time consuming, but somebody pays. And uh, we, we, we've got so many different avenues out here that when, if the sawmill business slows down a little bit, we go and do work on another project. Uh, we did land clearing for quite a few years, and then that kind of faded away because I didn't have any help. And then some bigger companies like Green Development and some other people that we know came into the area and started clear-cutting big areas. Mm. And it just we couldn't even compete with them. So all my land clearing equipment sits right here in my yard right now. Right. A couple of chippers and grinders and skidders and landing loaders and I there's, there's more but anyway but if it came back you would be able to change what you're doing pretty easily right when these solar people get through doing all the solar fields around here I don't know what's going to happen then right because I'm, these big companies they'll probably just go hang it up and sell everything and be down the road and. But they come and do a lot of these smaller jobs now. Sure. So can we talk about all the different products that you produce here at the mill? Because, of course, you've got post and beam, you've got some lumber, and then you've also got firewood, mulch. Can we just go through who your customers are and what markets you're selling to right now? Really, we have like four different entities here. We have the sawmill, and we saw lumber for anybody that wants it. If you brought logs in... We would saw logs for you if we didn't have a backlog of orders to saw. And we really don't want to get involved with sawing other people's logs. You never know what's in them for metal or whatever. Sure. And then we have the pallet end of the business out there on that side of the road. Uh, we make all the pallets with all the byproducts from the post and beam sector of the building. I mean the business. And if we get a post and beam log that comes in that's not good enough for a beam, we put it into pallet lumber. And those pallets are pretty interesting. We were looking at them out in the mill. You know, yep. they're not the, what everybody would picture when you think right. of pallets. Right. They're the specialty pallets. That are used to move large machinery. Right. right? That was a skid, yes, more so than a pallet. But we've made them up to 10 feet wide and, and 30 feet long. Or a piece of equipment. We had to deliver it on the trailer truck. 
Yeah. We should have got a permit because it was over width at 10 feet, <laughs> but we didn't have to go very far, probably six miles from here at the well, time. I won't report you. Okay. Thank That's... you. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got your mulch business, which. And then when you come on this side of the road, we have the mulch business, which started in 1986. We started, we bought our first debacker in 1986. After that, my mother was still here and everything. And she said, saw the pile of mulch that we had generated that year. And she says, I don't know what you boys are going to do with all that stuff. And it disappeared. And every year we sell a little bit more and a little bit more. And now we've started dyeing the mulch out there. Uh, we've sold dyed mulch for, gosh, I don't know, 20 years. And it's, uh, you know, it's its own little niche. You right. know? Anybody around here that, that sells dyed mulch has to buy it somewhere. There are a couple of companies around here that, that are in the mulch business, and they they go up north and buy it up there. Hmm. They'll go to Old Castle and in uh, Route Three, I mean Route One Thirty Eight in Wyoming, and buy it there. Huh. So. And then you've got firewood, like we then, saw. Yep. Then we buy all the firewood that we can find tree length at a reasonable price. We pay X number of dollars per cord for it. And if we can buy it at that price, we'll take it. And we go pick it up. Or we have had people deliver it before, too. We just pay them the trucking charge and pay the where it came from for the firewood. And uh, that's turned out to be a, a good little thing because a lot of times we can go out to that firewood pile and pick out some nice little small four-by-six size logs that we need because usually when we buy logs from a, a logger, they're always 12, 14 inches, 16 inches. It's hard to get a four by six out of a log that big. So we go out to that firewood pile sometimes and pick out, especially if it's a white oak, cut off an eight footer or a 10 footer or a 12 footer, mm, whatever, whatever the order calls for. And sure. we, so we make out there and, and uh, right now we're getting uh Four by sixes, 16 foot. We can't get enough of those for the pallet industry. Hmm. And uh, so we'll sometimes we bring in a load of firewood, whether it's our own firewood or something that I bought from a vendor that we'll go, if it's straight enough for a four by six, we'll save it out and put it into the pallet pile. Right. So can we talk about where you're sourcing these logs from? Both geographically, how far away are they coming 20 from? miles for us is... is, is oh, wow, okay. Yeah, we don't go much further than that. Right. We've gone to Hartford a couple of times years ago, just too far. Yeah. There's enough wood locally to be able to acquire. And how also. many loggers, crews are you sourcing from? Oh, gosh, probably eight mm -hmm. different ones that, that's... We have one full-time guy, which is Mr. Dick Ames, and then we had another one named Willie Jillo, but he had, he came down with uh, some kind of a lung cancer, mm. and he had to give it up. And before that, we had two guys from the sawmill here, which was Louie, who was sawing, and another guy, Joe Palmer and Pat Riley, and they were our own workers, mm -hmm. and we'd just go buy a wood lot and send them there every day. They'd go there. Sure. So we'd source those logs back here ourselves with our own trucks. Mm -hmm. 
And then people like Bob Thurber would come down here and say, hey, Jim, I got a wood lot. I want to sell you the logs. I'd only want to give him $5, and he wanted 10 but I'd end up giving him 8 instead. And <laughs> just kidding, but He's got plenty of small logs. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. But anyway, there are quite a few loggers out there. That, a wannabe loggers, some of them are called. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't really know what they're doing. and uh, But, the, hey, if they've got good wood, we'll buy it. The oh. price of the logs today is um, quite a bit more than what it used to be 20 years ago because of all these people are shipping the real nice stuff up north, right. either to Canada or the furniture places uh, like Ethan Allen and there's a couple more up that way. So you've seen a lot of changes to probably both this area and the industry in your time. Um, yep. Can you talk about you know, how things have shifted around here and what you're seeing today from what i see we have four to six weeks behind in orders right now we have never been that far behind in orders if we were a week behind in orders say four or five years ago we thought that was good now it's four to six weeks about four months ago we used to tell them eight weeks and the beginning of the summer mm-hmm. we were that far, and boy we have Pissed a lot of people off because we never got that lumber in time. Why has demand gone up so much, do you think? Uh, the COVID was a lot because people were out of work and they just wanted to tinker around and they'd come in here and pick up product here or they'd, they'd want to keep busy and build something for themselves. And I mean, whether they got it out of this yard that we have here for retail or they placed an order, the order would take them a few weeks where the retail part, they could come here and pick up whatever they wanted if we had it in stock. We try to stock mm-hmm. as much as we can. About four months ago, we didn't have a stick of lumber to speak of out there for retail because it was all gone. At the In the spring of this year right here, there was nothing out there. And we didn't have time to saw more and put it out there because we were trying to fill these people's orders. Right. And customers were coming and taking it fast as we put it out there but now we've since it got hot weather and stuff we've started to accumulate you know there's probably i'm going to just guess eight or ten thousand feet of boards out there Mm -hmm. right now that can be sold and plus beams and a few other things around here but some of the businesses like like the pallet business will there'll always be pallets to be made we don't make that GMA pallet because that's made with a big machine and they do for production. We do the specialty pallet, like I was telling earlier. Right. And we can charge, name our own price as long as we're making money. Mm-hmm. Some of those pallets have a hundred bolts in it. We have to lag bolt these things together. Wow. You know, nothing's nailed to speak of in those skids that we were showing. Mm-hmm. Those big ones made with the four by sixes and four by fours. Everything's lag bolted or nothing bolted together because mm-hmm. they put some very big equipment right. on those. So different sawmills have very different approaches to how they manage inventory. Yep. And I'm curious if you have kind of a guiding theory of what works best for you. Um, just keep buying and putting it in a pile. Okay. That's my. <laughs> if you ask me how much, 
I have to guesstimate out there yeah. how much firewood is out there. I know we just bought that wood lot with a thousand cord of firewood on it, and we've finally brought it all home, but we've sold some. Um, plus, we brought in some more from different locations, and mm-hmm. so I know that there's probably, whatever I told you before, six, eight hundred cord of firewood out there right now. Right. You know, some logger will call up and say, hey, I've got five loads of firewood over here. Mm-hmm. Last week, a logger called up and said he had eight loads of firewood here at his job. And he wanted to get rid of it that week. He uh, actually cut the price a little bit and he delivered them himself eight loads in one week. Wow. That was uh, a little bit steeper than what I anticipated. Right. But we picked out some real nice quote-unquote, pallet stock out of there, those 16-foot pallet logs. We picked those out of there, quite a few. I just want to zoom out a little bit and talk about, you know, because we're doing our business management issue of the magazine this in September. Yeah. Um, I think that something that people might wonder about is how when so many mid-sized mills have closed. Yep. Besides just your ability to be diversified and to change what you're doing pretty quickly, Mm -hmm. is there something that you see that you all have done that has kept you in business while so many mills close around here? Just being able to saw the oak and the pine and just going. We don't even have to go out really looking for customers. They just come word of mouth mostly. And we can stock, but we know that we're going to sell certain things in the spring or the fall or the winter, we saw a lot of, like I said, grade stakes in the winter time. So we could make up 10,000 grade stakes out there for snowplow stakes. You know, we know we're going to sell them totally. in the winter, you know, yeah. and that's just one item. And we got a couple of pallet customers and those skid customers that uh, they buy the same exact thing every month. So we could, you know, if it slowed down in the mill itself for soaring, uh, we could we'd stop inventorying some of that stuff. Sure. You know. No, I noticed that you don't have kilns here. No, that's another whole entity. Yeah. Um, yep. So with the post and beam, you don't have to deal with with that. No. Uh, no. Okay. Once in a great while, a customer will ask if we can send it to a different location and have it kill the ride. Mm-hmm. Most of the post and beam people want to use it when it's dead green. The lumber's nice and crispy, and it makes a much neater joint in a joinery. Huh. When it's old and dry, I don't mean old, but when it's dried out like that, it just doesn't, it's twice as hard to cut a square hole or whatever they do, however. Huh. Interesting. Yep. Well, so we're here with Bob Thurber, who is uh, who supplies uh, the Thompson Native Lumber and has for how many years? A little over 30. A little over 30 years. And so uh, could you just speak about, you know, what it, uh, how having this market fits into your operation? Absolutely. Um, being able to, to bring in mixed loads where, as Jim says, he saws both hardwood and softwood and and low-grade and beam stock. You can make up loads that aren't suitable for somebody else that Jim's able to use and willing to take. Right. 
And if I bring a load of wood in by Thursday, he's got the money on Friday. Where other mills two weeks out to get paid, you know, or, or longer. It's important. And so, you know, for a, for a little operator like myself, cash flow is key. You know, being able to keep a local mill going, you know, keep the resource local and local people working is, is important to me. For sure. And it's really, you know, it's kept me going in times when, you know, I can't get trucks to move wood north like now because of fuel costs. You know, yeah. Having a, a mill, you know, nearby it, it enables me to keep in some kind of production. And But I'm diversified myself. Firewood, pulpwood, mulch. Right. Mulch wood, round wood mulch, you know, so. It also seems that having those markets helps you do better forestry. Absolutely. We have, a lot of, we have a lot of low grade material and and more more than high grade material. So you just generate low grade wood off every project that you're doing. So I sort my wood out for homeowners who don't need nice straight wood, prefer a smaller wood. Mm-hmm. And I sort off the firewood processor quality wood like that. Because if I put it all in one pile, I'd never be able to move it all. The low-grade wood piles up, and then people who call in October looking for wood, I, I pick it out of my pile and bring it to them. But as it comes out of the woods, I've got to I've got to sort it, otherwise, it'll just accumulate too fast. And and, and the like the job that I'm on right now, the hardwood job that I'm running, we've cut four loads of oak or mixed hardwood logs. I've cut ten loads of firewood, so more than double the number of loads of low-grade wood to the number of loads of saw logs mm-hmm. in order to do good forestry. Right. So can you talk a little bit about your uh, mulch operation? Because that, you know, that's a big thing in this area, and having that as a place for low-grade wood seems uh, right. like an important market. You have a blue grinder up there, Peterson Horizontal Grinder, and we do when we get enough help here, take that pulp wood that I showed you out back and we'll run it right through that machine and let it sit there and age. Plus we use whole tree chips for the mulch out there and we buy some of them from some of the local tree guys, pay them a minuscule amount. My theory is that we don't pay much, but we always pay. Mm -hmm. Like Bob said, he can come here on a Friday and know he can get his check. But that's our theory here, and we've been said that for years. You know, and, and some people won't even do business with us because I'm kind of a cheapskate a little bit. But <laughs> then I get to talking to Bob, and I have to give him what he wants if I want his product. And, you know, we've overpaid for some products before to people just to keep them happy and keep us happy also. But sure. Then you get turn around, and the next week you, you have a customer who's willing to sell it to you at lower prices so you it all balances out in the end there's long-term relationships yes yeah yep. so with the mulch i mean you've got several different mulch products out there you've yep. got a dyed red mulch right and a dyed black mulch and a brown mulch and yep. a playground chips yep. or, yeah the natural mulch yeah that seems like it's uh, a pretty good product in this area well, right now 10 years ago we we sold most a lot of mulch. I'm going to say the biggest percentage to local homeowners and stuff. They come and get four yards, but we used to have them lined up right out there in the road, waiting to come in here to get it. But since then, 
We've got bigger lot customers now where we deliver 25-yard loads to them and they resell it. We don't have to rely on that homeowner anymore. Right. But in the springtime, like this year here, we probably could have raised the price a little bit more for the mulch because of fuel. But we have so many landscapers who have already quoted pricing to customers. And so we we abide by that price and well, instead of making next number of You should be very proud. That's why we so gave you an award. I'm sure my dad yeah. would be so very well, proud. I guess, uh, my my final question is just, you know, looking towards the future. What do you see coming down the line? The future here at Thompson Lumber, um, it looks good as far as producing lumber and having customers. But me, myself, I'm 75 years old. I'm ready to hit the road. I'm ready to take my shingle down. Mm-hmm. Let somebody else put a shingle up. Yeah. And who knows, you know, who it'll be or when it'll be, but I've been trying to do this for the last three years. Mm-hmm. And, it, I mean, there's a lot of people, I say a lot, not a lot, but there are people that come here and inquire about it because they know I'd like to. But anyway, I'm hoping that this year here somebody will come along and say, yes, I would like to buy a sawmill. Well, you heard it here first on the Northern Logger podcast. Uh, if you're in the market to buy a sawmill, <laughs> yeah. Jim Thompson is selling. <laughs> so, uh, well, I know you got to get going. Yeah, all right. We got to wrap it up. But thank you so much, Jim. It was a oh, pleasure no to her. And, and thanks, Bob, for. Uh, well, you should be very proud. That's why we gave I, you an I, award. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure my dad would be very proud. Thanks for listening to our interview with Jim Thompson of Thompson Native Lumber. You can read complete coverage of his story and information about his operation in the September issue of the Northern Logger magazine. So I have some personal news, which is that after about five years as the editor of the Northern Logger magazine, I'm going to be moving on to a new opportunity this August. And I have been, for the past couple weeks, training the new editor of the Northern Logger magazine. Her name is Erin Kessler, and she has a really interesting background, has lived all over the world and had experience writing about a wide variety of topics, but actually has her roots in Boonville, New York, which a lot of our listeners might know as the home of the Woodsman's Field Days. So she comes from a really interesting background And I just wanted to introduce you all to Erin Kessler because she will be also the new host of the Northern Logger podcast. So she's here with me right now. Erin, can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing before you became the new editor of the Northern Logger magazine? Sure. Thanks so much, Eileen, for the great introduction. Before joining the Northern Logger, I was living and working in Japan and I was an editor and writer covering Japanese culture, food, and also one of my main projects was working on the National Parks of Japan website and writing content and updating the entire website. So I love nature and I'm happy to be back here working in the Adirondack Mountains. So yeah, it's so great that you're from this area because there's such a long logging history in 
the central Adirondacks, you were telling me just a little bit about what's exciting to you in your first week or so of the new job. Can you talk about that for our listeners? Sure. I've been learning a lot about my own connections to the logging industry here. And I recently found out that my great-grandmother had been one of the cooks at a logging camp here in the Adirondacks. That's really fascinating to me, the history of logging. But in addition to that, I'm really looking forward to covering all of the topics related to the forest products industry, which are incredibly broad, but fascinating. And yeah, I'm looking forward to covering all those topics, which include global contemporary industry, which changes pretty quickly. It's pretty fast paced. So that's a really exciting prospect for me. So thanks a lot. Yeah, that's such a fascinating thing to go from the history of the industry, which is so deep, particularly in our area, and then see how it's really become this global industry that our listeners have to keep up with basically minute to minute. Uh, So thanks, Erin. And I know that our listeners will be excited to hear your first episode of the Northern Logger podcast in September. Thanks so much. I'm looking forward to it. That was this month's Northern Logger podcast. Thank you to Aaron and thank you to Jim Thompson for these great interviews. And thanks again to our sponsor, John Deere. Unlock your potential and experience a new level of innovation with our latest operator assistance feature, Intelligent Boom Control. With IBC, operators no longer need to control each independent boom joint separately. One joystick moves the boom tip horizontally, while a second guides it vertically, allowing for consistent and smooth operation. The end result is a better experience for all loggers, easy-to-learn functionality for new operators and enhanced productivity for experienced ones. Intuitive and accurate, IBC is the smart way to take control of the forest. Raise your game with IBC. Innovation never felt so easy. And on a personal note, thanks to people that have listened to this podcast for the past few years. It has been my pleasure to be the host, and I appreciate your listening. Mm -hmm.